1: Hi, this is David Locke, Executive Director of the Rainforest XPRIZE, a five-year competition to discover, understand, and preserve the health of rainforests around the world. Our rainforests are home to the planet's largest collection of plants, animals, and insects. Countless more species have yet to be documented, but the rainforests are disappearing. Unmatched biodiversity is being destroyed before their scientific value can be catalogued and shared with the world we need your help in developing novel technologies that can rapidly catalog diverse forms of life in the rainforest and unlock knowledge of these complex ecosystems whatever your background or discipline we all have a role to play in protecting our rainforest learn how you can be a part of this challenge and register at rainforest.xprize.org thank you for your support hello everyone and welcome to the future positive podcast I'm your host, Emily Church, back again to give you a front row seat into the future, or at least into the minds of people who are working to make some seemingly unbelievable ideas of reality sooner than you could imagine. My mind was blown after hearing this conversation. So strap in and get ready for the latest episode of the Future Positive Podcast. In today's episode... XPRIZE CEO and space traveler Anusha Ansari speaks with SpaceX president and COO Gwen Shotwell on how every aspect of the SpaceX business model is tailored specifically, not only to send a starship to Mars, but also to build a sustainable human community on the red planet. One idea that I especially love in their conversation is looking at how the ambition and engineering required to allow people to live on another planet will inspire and enable us to take better care of the planet we currently live on. Let's jump into things and see what Anusha and Gwen have to say.
2: And thank you for joining us. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you today. And uh, I'll ask a few questions because, you know, I have the mic right now. But <laughs> uh, pretty soon we're going to uh, open it up. So think about your questions. But you know, I'm a space geek. I always wanted to go to space, and that's what I dreamt about. What about you? Did you ever want to go to space? So
0: uh, my story is a little different, actually. Um, I grew up in a little town north of Chicago when there was not a lot of aerospace there. Um, I didn't have any role models in space. My family didn't really know anything about space. I do remember, however, when my father was in the Army, uh, when Apollo landed, he sat the, me and my two sisters in front of the TV set uh, to watch that extraordinary moment. And I, I do remember that, um, and it was quite long ago. so. Um, that was like the beginning of it. and but my role models and the machines that I was
2: familiar with were cars. So I was actually a car person before a space person. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I know that you guys had amazing journey over the past few years, a lot of first, a lot of amazing uh, launches. I watch them all on YouTube live, um, and what excites you about the future of commercial space and what you 're doing and how you 're changing uh, this, the whole landscape?
0: So you know we do uh, an awful lot um, to try to promote uh, space travel um, and settlements on other planets so the the next big thing for us, of course, is flying crew for the first time. Uh, we just sent the Dragon capsule to do an in-flight abort test uh, here in the next month or so. Uh, and then we're going to follow that up as quickly as we can with a flight of actual crew uh, to the International Space Station. So not only is that, I think, the most exciting thing that we're doing right now, it's, almost, it's al- also the most kind of nerve-wracking um, and, and frightening things uh, that's sitting right here on our horizon. Um, we'll do everything we can, uh, along with
2: NASA, uh, to make sure that trip is extraordinary for the two astronauts. Um, I, I have to say, so I flew on the Soyuz, which is a very tiny capsule, and I've seen the dragon. Yes, It seems like a luxury. It's uh, more like a ride. minivan. Yes, yes, definitely. And and uh, it, it will be exciting. I don't know if everyone here knows, but um, for the past many years since the shuttle program uh, retired, uh, the only way to go to a space station has been through um, the Russian uh, Soyuz program. So this will be the first when you fly, actually the first uh, American, uh, you know, flight of carrying passengers or carrying astronauts to space station. So, very very exciting. Um, so I assume a lot of people at um, SpaceX also are space geeks, they want to go to space, and uh, you are working on so many different projects uh, right now that um, sometimes I wonder, how do you keep them focused and motivated, and, and what really how, what's your strategy inside the organization on how to focus people on the big goals ahead? So we have one, we really have one goal,
0: and that is to build space transportation systems that allow people to live on other planets. Um, it sounds like we have a lot of different projects, but everything we do leads to that. And so I think with that singular goal, that singular purpose, it makes it far easier to run a company. Everybody knows where we're headed. Everybody understands how their piece fits into that, and they're very excited about it. Like, what is isn't what is more exciting than that, actually? Um, I can't think of much. So. Frankly, I think the simplicity of the vision, or the singularity of the vision, is the most helpful thing. Oh. Elon's super helpful to get everybody corralled <laughs> as well. And by the way, I am not CEO. I have a boss. His name is Elon. He's CEO. <laughs> I'm president and chief operating officer. <laughs> and I love my job. Um, you, you know, I think I've been a good partner to Elon. We complement each other very well. He has skills um, and he's great at things that I'm not. And I think I have skills and I think I'm good at things that are not his best thing. Um, and I, I think that complementary action and the, the, the working together so closely, 17 years ago, actually, I started at the company, my anniversary, 17-year anniversary was just last month. Um, So we got to learn together, actually, learn about growing this kind of company, learn about how in the world you get uh, rockets to orbit and people to space. yeah, and then just like any startup, you know, everybody kind of gobbles up extra work, not because they're uh, wanting to gobble up extra work, but because someone's got to do it, right? You've got this tiny company. And I was gobbling up. I started at head of sales. Uh, I took on some of the systems engineering functions, the customer work. You bring in customers, they pay. you got to have a finance function. You have detractors. You have to have a a kind of a government affairs function. So I just kept gobbling that kind of stuff up. And then by the time, in 2008, when we won the big NASA um, cargo resupply mission, it was a $1.6 billion uh, contract, it was clear that Elon needed some additional help. And and he kind of looked over, and I was there. And he said, you want to be president? And I was like, "Uh, "Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? Why not? I love the innovation that gets done at SpaceX. That's largely Elon's job. I kind of keep the train on the tracks. Um, And innovation at SpaceX causes havoc for me to keep things calm, keep people moving, (laughs) right? Yes. So we have these kind of sort of opposed goals that align us to get us where we need to go. Um, But I'm really excited about Starship. That is going to change everybody's perspective about both life on Earth and life in the stars. Thanks so much for coming. Um, Two sort of related questions. The first one is, in addition to bringing people to Mars, is SpaceX going to be involved at all in the search for life on Mars? And relatedly, what are you going to be doing or what are you thinking about space contamination, especially microbes? So it's a great question actually. Um, we're hoping, and we're seeing actually, since Starship has come along, I think since the administration has really been focused on the moon, then onto Mars, we're seeing a lot more energy in figuring out how to not just land, put boots on, plant a flag and leave. People starting to think about how do you have settlements on these heavenly bodies. Um, so it won't just be us doing all the really hard work uh, to figure out how to build communities uh, on the moon and. And Mars. Um, As far as uh, looking for life on Mars, we're going to have to figure out how to do that very carefully. We will initially land to not contaminate the particular um, kind of critical scientific uh, interest areas uh, on that. Because, you know, once you get people there, you're going to start having people stuff on the surface, right? So we're going to have to plan that very carefully. Um, It's very important to stay away from those uh, intensely scientifically important areas. We'll We'll start with people in other areas.
2: Great, I love what you guys are doing. I, I, I think you should IPO soon, because I want to buy your stock. Uh, <laughs> but the, uh, the question is, uh, India's done a lot of cool stuff recently, and as, let's say, these emerging markets, emerging countries start doing more space, how does SpaceX evolve from being like an American company to being more like a global uh, organization, let's say decades down the future?
0: Yeah, so building rockets and spaceships, unfortunately, um, is is tightly controlled technology, or the technology in order to facilitate that particular line of business is very tightly controlled by the government. For for obvious reasons, I think there's good reasons. Um, Falcon 9 is a gigantic ICBM, actually, so you wanna make sure that you don't share that technology broadly. Um, So there's that piece, which really prevents us from doing a lot of engineering development in other countries. We We have customers all over the world. Now with the Starlink system, that's the, constellation that we'll be putting in place to provide global broadband, low latency internet, um, that particular technology is not protected the same as rocket technology. And so we'll be able to have uh, businesses and technology development centers uh, across the globe. And we're, we're very excited about that particular part. I, you know, the US does not have a corner on the market of great engineers, and yet with our initial line of business, we're really kind of uh, forced to stay um, pretty U.S. based, at least on the tech development. So we'll, we'll be getting there, and then uh, I think uh, there'll be lots of very interesting things to do on the surface of the Moon and Mars. Uh, it will, you know, It's going to take a village to do that, and it will hopefully be a very international village.
1: Um, apropos long-term space travel and settlement of other places, um, Kim Stanley Robinson, I think, is in the room. His book, Aurora is a delightful uh, trip into how things happen. And when you get lots of humans in close quarters, strange things happen. Uh, and I've read enough good sci-fi to know that that's going to be difficult. What are you doing culturally to plan for that? How do, you, how do you figure out what to do on these long travels where there's really no exit hatch? Well, there is, but it's a one way.
0: Right. Uh, Candidly, we are quite focused on the machines right now, but we know that there has to be a lot more to it uh, once you put 100 or 200 people in that machine uh, and send them on to uh, Mars. The moon is a couple days. I feel like we're all going to get along for a couple days. Um, you know, the Navy with submariners is going to be kind of an interesting uh, place to start figuring out how we're going to you know, maintain peace and prosperity on that ship as we're headed to Mars. Even today, the space, I think, is uh, a bit crowded place. So what what do you think we can do with the overcrowding? So, w- I don't want to give anyone the impression that we're not quite concerned about the space environment. I think it's hard to find a leader that is more focused on the environment like, like Elon is. Um, but if you think about the 10,000 orbiting objects, think about 10,000 people on the planet, it would be hard to run into them all the time if with only 10,000 people, and then you put them at a much higher altitude, the spacing becomes even more. So it is crowded for space, but I, d- I don't think we should l- freak out yet, right? Because it's getting more crowded. And so we do need to start figuring out ways of ensuring that we don't junk up that particular environment. I mean, we'd be a horrible steward to go do that, you know, to basically junk up the environment that we're trying to operate and have enterprise in. So there are are a number of strategies. Um, Every time we do a launch, our launch license requires us to bring back the second stage, so we don't have rocket body junk uh, orbiting, creating havoc for the operational systems that are there. Candidly, you could probably use Starship to go uh, approach and gobble up some stuff that uh, is orbiting that has lost its control or its ability and bring it down. Um, So technology like Starship could be used to uh, kind of vacuum, uh, vacuum the space environment. It's a tough problem, by the way. Speeds are high. Everyone's going really fast up there.
2: I have to make a plug for XPRIZE. We've been talking about maybe doing a prize in space debris, so if anyone out there is interested, there's some potential opportunity to do a wild car and go pitch a um, space debris prize. We have a question here. When we put stuff in space, we engineer it really carefully, so it'll survive launch and it'll last a long time in space. And when we put these squishy bags of mostly water in space, we don't engineer anything. I'm talking about our bodies. So at what point, and more specifically, what is SpaceX doing to help us harden ourselves to be a multi-planetary species?
0: You know, that's actually a great question. I, in my 17 years at SpaceX, no one's asked me a question like that. It's always been protecting <laughs> that squishy body, not making it more robust. Uh, you know what? I'm, we have a flight surgeon on staff. I'm going to go ask him when I get back today.
1: So I think it's wonderful that you're exploring the environment on other planets and in space. Um, I've just been wondering um, when I saw the uh, liftoffs of the um, spaceships in the video, um, that there are a lot of CO2 emissions um, that are produced by this um, you know, action. And um, since this is having implications on our environment on Earth, Um, I was just wondering, um, in terms of the technology that you're using and the emissions that you're also producing for the planet that we have, um, that we're all living in right now, or on right now, um, are you also exploring possibilities um, to use more green energy with less carbon emissions uh, that are linked to it when you actually um, lift off?
0: Sure. Most of the plume that you see there is actually water. Uh, so it's not, it's not uh, as horrifying as, as you might think. However, uh, we are concerned about that. Right now we use for the Falcon family, we use liquid oxygen and kerosene. Kerosene is a highly refined jet A. Remove sulfur to make it slightly cleaner. Um, one thing going for us is rocket engines in general are very efficient. Uh, they've been designed to be very efficient, so the constituents of the exhaust, are kind of low quantities of the harmful gases in the emissions, but it's not zero. We are moving away from kerosene, uh, moving to a lox uh, methane system. Methane can be created also uh, basically from constituents in the regolith on Mars, Um, and so we don't need to dig up a bunch of million-year-old dead dinosaurs uh, to create the fuel necessary uh, for the Starship uh, system. So we're using cleaner fuel. The engines that we're working on continue to be even more efficient, which means they convert more of that fuel to propulsion and and basically non-greenhouse gases than
2: even our existing ones. Emily, last question. I'll start with a broad question, which is
0: the idea of living on Mars is very new and very scary to a lot of the, most of the people in the world, I would argue. How, um, How do you articulate to, the world, why we need to do it, what the time frame is, and what life is going to look like there? So that's a, that, that is a very broad question. And there were three, and I'm over 50, and I can hardly remember anything anymore. So let's take it one at a time. Uh, <laughs> so why? Um, it does surprise me that people ask why. And I'm not, I'm not criticizing you at all, because a lot of people ask why. Um, how can we as living, growing, becoming smarter, hopefully we're getting smarter, hopefully, um, human beings, not think about leaving Mother Earth and trying out life on other planets? That just feels like such a, a normal step in kind of the progress of, of human life. Um, so you could look at it that way. We are explorers. Uh, we're different from other species on the planet. We explore. We find new places. We figure out how to live there. Um, and, and you know, going beyond Earth just seems normal to me. But let's, let's put that aside. Let's not think about that. You get in your day-to-day life. Think about what would happen if there were to be some horrifying event on Earth um, where Earth could no longer sustain uh, the same number of people in order to not have a bunch of people die, we, we need to find new places for them to live. So it's kind of like risk management for the human species, finding new places to go. And it's not new places to exploit. It's new places to live and thrive. And life is going to be hard, and you're going to have to recycle everything you bring to use it, right? I feel like we will learn to be better stewards of Earth by figuring out how to go live on other planets. I think campers, candidly, are some of the most efficient humans on the planet because what they bring in, extreme camping, what they bring in, they have to bring out. And what they, bring, what they can't carry, they don't get, so they've got to figure out how to use what they bring in. So I feel like moving to Mars and then hopefully far more interesting and beautiful places after that um, will help us be much better humans on Earth.
2: I think astronauts are more efficient. Oh, astronauts yes. might be very efficient yes. too. We can't yes. yes. We only Good have point. very limited yes. right. space stations. <laughs> yes, you're right. You're right.
0: Yeah. That's camping in the
2: extreme. Yes, camping. <laughs> Even more absolutely, than, yeah. Absolutely. Gwen, thank you so of much. Of course, for my your pleasure. Time. It's been wonderful to have you. Thank, you. thank you. Thank you.
1: So there you have it. It sounds like we're going to Mars. It's honestly incredible to think that the first people who will live on another planet are likely alive already. We are living in truly miraculous times. Next up on the XPRIZE Future Proof Podcast, Martine Rothblatt and Dean Kamen will be talking about what it will take to live forever and the race to live long enough for technology to unlock the future of longevity. To get this episode delivered directly to your phone or laptop, don't forget to subscribe.
2: Hi, I'm Anusha Ansari, astronaut and CEO of XPRIZE, a global future positive movement of over 1 million people and rising, tackling the world's grandest challenges in exploration, environment and human equity. We'd love for you to join us. Check us out on your favorite socials and find out how you can support, sign up or join a team at XPRIZE.org.